Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 11, we read, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all may arrive at the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. At a man complete, at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be infants, being tossed and being carried about by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men, in craftiness toward the systematizing of error, but that holding the truth in love, we may grow up into Him who is everything, who is the head, Christ, from whom all the body, being fitted together and being joined together by every joint supplied, working according to the measure of each single part, so that the body might increase itself in order to build up itself in love. Paul has a way of putting things. Uh, if you are participating in the small group that Andrew started uh, on Friday nights, you've been reading through some of uh, Paul's writings, and you've been reading through some chapters in a, uh, in a profoundly uh, beneficial book. But one of the things that we recognize when we read Paul is he has a way of getting awfully wordy. Oftentimes he'll begin a sentence and you'll get eight or nine lines down and you're thinking, wait a minute, he, I haven't seen a period yet. That's how Paul writes. And he also writes often with some very uh, parenthetical statements. He'll be in the middle of a train of thought, open parentheses, he didn't have parentheses in the Greek text, but he'll open parentheses lay a thought out there, close parentheses, and then move on, continuing the statement that he began verses and verses earlier. Uh, he has a way of turning whole sentences into complete paragraphs. But that's Paul. I, I love these sorts of passages where he, he gets on what I often call a Pauline tear. He, he just starts and starts, and he's going and he's moving, and he's, he's getting... Not lost in the, uh, on the rabbit trail, but, but he, he knows where he's going. But he's saying so much in these statements that uh, would otherwise be quite simple. But here we find one such statement. He began in chapter 4 calling the believers to walk in unity. And then he goes, goes on to talk about the fact that Christ has given gifts to his church and he, 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 he gives a kind of a poetic verse about him ascending on high and, and giving gifts to men when he led what he called captivity captive. And then he offers a parenthetical statement. He said, well, you know, he ascended, but he first descended and he makes some very, very awkward statements we're not going to get into today. But then he kind of continues that thought of the giftedness of the church and how God is putting together one people and he's calling us to unity in the faith because he's given us a diversity of gifts. He's given us a diversity of abilities and strengths. But notice what he says about these gifts. They are given for the sake of the body so that the body might grow in love and so that it might become what he calls a man complete, perfect, fully being what God intends it to be. We began last week 
dealing with our values as a congregation. And you'll remember, hopefully, that values are not ideals, they're not platitudes, they're not intentions, they're not motivational or demotivational posters that we put up on a wall that kind of encourage us to strive for things. They are realities because they are principles. They are the essentials of who we are. In fact, you do what you value. If you sleep in, you value sleep. If you eat steak, you value protein, whether you knew it or not. You act upon and behave according to those things that you value. Values are substantiated by our actions. They, they are our behavior. They become our behavior because they're a part of our DNA. The essence, the makeup, the information that makes us who we are. And as a congregation, we began looking last week at how we carry three values within ourselves as a body. We value relational community, transformational discipleship, and personal mission. We looked last week at community, specifically relational community, and what we mean by that, that sense of shared life together, life that is lived in fellowship together, that that goes beyond just the shaking of hands on a Sunday morning, that goes beyond just the, hey, how you doing, but a life that's actually lived in, in relationship together. This morning, we're going to focus in on transformational discipleship. Now, something I want you to be aware of. I've been been harassing you for the better part of three years now to please try to commit these values to your memory. I'll make it even more simple for you. Um, Rather than worrying about all six of those terms, drop just the adjectives and think of those three terms. Community discipleship, and mission. That's what we are about. We are about community. We are about discipleship. We are about mission. Obviously, we mean something specific about community and discipleship and mission, but those are the three biggies. Community, discipleship, and mission. And what I want to do this morning is look at what we mean by discipleship as we, as the people of God, reflect upon the Word of God together. Discipleship brings to our mind the making of disciples. Which begs the question, what is a disciple? All throughout the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, you had God calling his people to what he called a walk. Abraham, as Abram, before his name was changed. Abram, was called by God, and God said, walk before me. We read of some of the patriarchs in the Old Testament who walked all throughout the Old Testament. You have this this metaphor of walking. The life of faith is a life of walking before God, a life of walking with God, And as the New Testament paints a more clear picture for us, a walk in God. God calls us to walk before Him, with Him, and in Him. Jesus' call to disciples was follow me. Very simple. And yet so profound and meaningful. So life-changing. When the one who hung the stars steps up to your tax booth and says, come and follow me. 
everything has suddenly changed. Everything. But he calls his disciples, follow me. He calls you and I, follow me. Interestingly enough, uh, it was Dietrich who says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Which is not so delightful of a concept. But think of it. Jesus calls his disciples, follow me, and three days later, they are standing before a cross. On his last journey to Jerusalem, he's trying to teach them that, look, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be given over into the hands of others. And I'll be hung up on a cross to die. And they, they, of course, are forbidding it. Never, Lord, never. It's at that point that Jesus tells Peter, who's saying, absolutely never, not on my watch, Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking like God thinks, you're thinking like mere man thinks. He calls us to follow him. He calls us on a journey, a life of discipleship. Discipleship being specifically to be found at the feet of another. When Jesus, uh, as, as the disciples called him Rabbani, as Jesus as a rabbi, disciples follow me, he was calling them to come and to stand with him, to come and, and be before him, to learn from him to be taught by Him. And His way of teaching them, we think of the parables, we think of, uh, we think of all of the metaphors that He used, we think of Him teaching about uh, what, what would happen before His return, we think of Him teaching them specifically on Monday, Thursday about the coming Holy Spirit and how His life is found in the Father, in the Spirit, uh, uh, come and bring the presence of the Father and the Son. We think of all of that teaching, but the interesting thing about the gospel narratives is that Jesus calls his disciples to come to him and he immediately takes them into the lives of others. We read of him touching lepers. We read of him healing the lame, restoring sight to the blind. We, we read of this, of this incredible incredible ministry of compassion and healing brings his disciples not just to some classroom but to the lives of others in fact the majority of his teaching was done even the teaching of the 12 disciples was done before the multitudes Jesus did not call his disciples out of the world he called them into the world he called them to himself in the world in fact, before he, uh, the, the night that he was betrayed, in his high, he's, his high priestly prayer, he specifically said, Father, I'm not asking them from the world. I'm asking you to keep them within the world. Protect them. Discipleship. He calls us to himself. He calls us to walk. He calls us to a journey. He calls us to follow him as his disciples. But what do we mean by discipleship? Even still, what, what, are, what are the um, parameters of discipleship? And you find parameters of discipleship in the New Testament that are life-encompassing. The aim of discipleship in the New Testament is not just about some, a, a Tuesday night program where we go through a workbook together. The aim of discipleship in the New Testament, is not just a Sunday school program. It's not, 
It's not even just a small group system. The aim of discipleship in the New Testament is life-encompassing and life-altering. Because the burden that is put upon us as disciples of Jesus involves how we think. It involves how we live. It involves how we interact with one another. It involves how we reflect God's image. And it involves also how we bear others in our lives. This passage in Ephesians, when Paul is talking about what God is doing in his church, he's talking about diversity of giftedness, a diversity of ministries within the life of the church. He talks about works of service that the church is called to perform. But he says also that Christ's church is that we would grow up and no longer be infants, but that we would mature, that we would come to that complete, perfect man. He says, he says even uh, in fact that we should no longer be children, in verse 14, tossed about to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. He says that there's trickery at play. Some are trying to even systematize falsehood so that it's more understandable and more memorable. And Paul says he doesn't want us to be deceived because, because God's call upon our lives will affect how we think. If you think doctrine is not important, then you probably ought to scrap half the New Testament, if not a little more. Check out your Pauline letter. Without fail, on the, well, the letters written to churches all begin with half a letter on doctrine and then half a letter on, okay, so now what? How do we live? Paul is concerned that the, that the early church would be swept away, that they would be, remain infants and be, be tossed about to and fro, that they would be constantly chasing after what sounds nice, what, what sounds good, what, what seems to... to, uh, to, to but make a little bit more sense, something a little bit more palatable to us. And Paul understands that Christ's call to us really is an imposition upon the way we think. We must think of Christ as He really is, not the Christ that we want Him to be, or wish He were, or think it might be cool if He was. But who is he really? The aim of discipleship in the New Testament also deals with how we live. Our behaviors, our actions. Which lead also to how we interact. Not just our private actions, but how we interact with others. Whether or not others see love in, in us. Whether or not others 
experience the love of Christ in us. Christ made us in the divine image. And in redeeming us, his intention is to restore that image. Paul says that um, Paul says the church has been gifted in such a way so that we might be built up. And then in verse 13, till we come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He wants in us His image. And so when we look at where we are on the road of discipleship, the question we ought to ask ourselves is, how well are we reflecting God's image? Which would also necessitate that we, uh, that we ask ourselves, how well are we bearing one another? All throughout the New Testament, you have this call to forgive one another or to bear with one another. And to bear with, is it's not just you know, dealing with someone's aggravations, although that, that's part of it. But to bear one another is to carry others within ourselves. To bear the weight of their lives within ourselves. To weep when they weep. To rejoice when they rejoice. The call to dissolve call wherein I, I live some, some abstract Christian life that's just me and Jesus and maybe my Bible if, you know, if I'm a good Christian. But the call to Christian life, the call to a real Christian faith is a call to others and to relate to others and to bear others. As Christ would have us. In fact, it was um, it was posted on the church's Facebook wall just a week or so ago. I think by Lindsay, uh, the the passage that that says this is. Religion that is acceptable, for, I'm paraphrasing here, this is religion that is acceptable before God to care for the orphans and widows. I mean, the cultural debate of good or bad or neutral and that sort of thing, the Bible uses the term religion in a positive light, but it defines what it means by positive, good, wholesome Christian religion. And it, it defines it, Lamar, very practically. To care for orphans and widows. It doesn't get very much more practical than that. Discipleship. Transformation. The biblical call upon our lives. Not just to learn more, but to become more. Not just to fill our heads, not even just to fill our hearts, but to fill our lives with others so that we might be Christ's presence to them. 
We said last week that the community is established and this value of relational community is about love. Finding a context in which we can practice self-giving, other-oriented love. And that is the aim and nature of discipleship. That's why we have small groups. Not just to learn more, but to find ourselves in a context where we can learn to love better. That's why we pick up litter on the side of the road up here once every three months. Up the road so the Bill's drive from home looks nicer on Sunday mornings. Although it does. <laughs> you know, you pick up six to eight bags of, of trash off the side of the road off of a one mile stretch, it's going to look nicer. Not just so that we can get signs posted at each end so the community drives by and says, oh, this is cleaned up by Faith Methodist Church. Where's Oh, that's the church right there with the sign. But because love is necessarily other-oriented. We pick up trash out of people's yards that we're passing. Pizza boxes and Doritos bags and Tennis shoes and all sorts of stuff. Now, we don't go take tennis shoes out of somebody's yard. You know, you might be worried. Wait a minute, you're stealing somebody's shoes. But, you know, in the ditch and so forth, you know, torn up stuff, all sorts of stuff. We picked up a, a, a car bumper last Saturday, not, not yesterday, but the Saturday prior, hubcaps uh, and, and windshield wipers. I'm surprised we but, but we do that not just to make the place prettier, and not just so that the world says, oh, that church is doing something, but because love compels us to actually do something. To give ourselves. To think of others. I can't, I can't even imagine how many, probably tens of thousands of people drive that mile each week and think, man, this place is a wreck. Why didn't somebody get out and clean? Well, we do. We could look at them and say, why don't you get out and clean? But instead, the gospel calls us to be other-oriented, not to say, hey, why don't you get out and clean, but hey, why don't I get out and clean? You're right. This place does need to be cleaned up. And so, within the life of our congregation, within the life of, of the New Testament church, we find the opportunity to challenge not just the way we think, but yes, that. Not just the way we live, but yes, that. Not just even the way we interact, but the way we bear one another, the way we reflect God's image in our lives. And the, the, the thermometer of discipleship, whether or not we are more and better disciples than we were last year, or whether or not we're less, or whether or not we kind of remain the same, the main is love. And love is not just a feeling, it requires action. To love is to act. The scriptures call us 
fact, right here in Ephesians 4, the last verse that we read. To grow in love, Paul says that the whole body's been joined together and knit together by every joint and what all has been supplied and all the measure of it. According to the effective working by which every part does its share. You and I all have shares as parts. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in We value not a discipleship program, not a specific discipleship book, not even a specific discipleship method. We value discipleship that transforms lives. in God's image and God will never ever ever be satisfied until that image is fully and thoroughly restored we hear it said all the time God is in the business of changing lives and that's what we mean by transformational discipleship he calls us to himself to transform. He calls us together as his body. He has brought together the church to transform us. To teach us how to love. To give us a context in which we can love. To help us to grow in love. And I would ask you to, with me, consider the responses on the back of your communication card. And please, at the close of service, however, I want you to drop off your communication card in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary. And very simply this morning, I want to ask you to pray with me that God would continue to transform your life. That God would continue His work of conforming us. What Paul says here is the measure of the stature of the fullness. Intentionally building upon itself. God transformed my life. I wonder also if you would consider joining a small group. We've got the one going on on Sunday nights. Had an incredible crowd last, uh, last uh, Sunday evening. Um, but even if you're not able to join that one, if you would mark on your communication card that you do want to join a small group, then we'll, uh, we're, we'll be putting together information about groups that will be starting up once we get through the season. And so if that's something you'd be interested in, to find a context in which you can kind of share your life with, with a small group of others and share what's going on in your life and walk through a study together and encourage one another in love. I want to ask you to please mark that. And then lastly, as God has 
remaking us in His images. He's calling us to Himself so that He might transform us. I wonder if you would commit to saying, I want to become more self-giving. Let's pray. Father, as we come to You, we come as people who have been called to You, people who have been called to one another, people who have been called into the lives of one another. And we come as people made in Your image. People for whom Your Son Jesus died. And Father, we come asking You to transform us. Asking You to remake us in Your image. Asking You to put back together our lives. To teach us how to think of You. To teach us, yes, what is good and wholesome biblical Christian doctrine. But Lord, filling our minds so that You might fill our hearts and fill our lives with others. Lord, we pray that You would help us to take off the the grips that we have upon our own lives and to give ourselves. To take our eyes off of ourselves and to cast them toward others. Lord, we pray that You would help us as Your people, people called by Your name, to live in love. To hold to the faith that has been given to us. A faith in which we are called to be transformed by your Son. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.